This morning we're going to remember to turn on our microphone before we come up on stage. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, so if you have your Bibles with you, you can pull those out. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, no big deal. We should have some Bibles in the pews or the chairs around you. And if you brought your mobile device with you, feel free to jump on the Bible app and look it up. We won't, we promise we won't think that you're texting. Or if you need to text, we'll just think you're reading your Bible. Before we get started, let's, let's open up in a word of prayer. God, we come before you this morning and thank you for the opportunity and, and for what you've laid on my heart. I pray, God, that you will use this message uh, just to teach me and help me to live the way that you want me to live and to help those who are here today to live how you want us all to live. pray that you will help me uh, to say what you want me to say the way you, you want me to say it and use this message to move your kingdom forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A couple days ago, our nation witnessed an historic event, the inauguration of our 45th president. Now, I would argue that this event was historic for a couple reasons, the first of which is pretty obvious. Anytime America gets a new president, history is made. Secondly, though, I would argue that it's historic because at least in my limited life experience, I cannot remember there ever being such pandemonium surrounding the result of a presidential election. I've lived long enough to see four presidents inaugurated, Bush, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, and at least as far as I can remember in that time period, nor from what I've read about time periods before that, no election has sparked the wide, vast range of reactions and responses that this one has. On one hand, you have some who come away from Friday feeling hope, feeling like good things are happening, feeling like our country is moving in a direction that they would call towards great again. On the other hand, at the other end of the spectrum, you have those who feel that this is an absolutely terrible event for our country. The word that has been commonly used is the word fear concerning the future of our nation. Others fall somewhere in between on that spectrum, not really sure yet what they think, kind of waiting to see what the future holds. Now, before you grab your coat and you head for the door, because the last thing any one of us needs is another political discussion, here's what I want you to know. I am not here today to try to change your political opinion, whatever that a political opinion might be. My goal isn't to change your opinion. My goal this morning is to talk with you about your viewpoint. Let me show you what I mean. On Friday, or Wednesday actually it was, I was sitting in my office looking out my window, wondering to myself, is it going to rain today? When I grew up, it used to be that if you wanted to know if it was going to rain on a certain day, you had to be in front of the TV at 6 o'clock to watch Dennis Bowman tell you what the forecast was going to be tomorrow. This is 2017. We don't do that anymore. If you want to know if it's going to rain, you can instantly get on weather.com and look up your location and the weather. So that's what I did. Looked up Butler on weather.com, and the forecast said 40% chance of rain. I thought to myself, way to be decisive. That's not helpful at all. You know what? If you're like me, you've done this. You've pronounced yourself the weatherman for the day and impatiently went down to the radar tool on the weather.com page and said, look, if, if you can't decide for yourself what you get paid to do, I'll just decide for me, and I clicked the radar map. And this is what I saw when I brought up the radar. There's our church, the little cross. There's our road, and everything surrounded in green. It sure looks like from that picture it's going to be a rainy day. 
But what you know, if you've ever used the radar tool before, is that the answer to the question, is it going to rain today, depends often on how you look at it. That's what I first saw, but then with a little bit of clicking, this is what I saw next. Same time, same tool, different viewpoint, different story. When I was focused in and zoomed in on just the right here, the right now, what's happening on my road, I saw rain. But when I took a step back and got a wider perspective and took a different viewpoint of it, the story changed. It was going to rain for a little bit, but pretty soon the rain was going to move out and it should be a nice day. As 21st century Americans, we tend to view our world and the things going on in it like that first picture, zoomed in and focused on the here and now. It's hard not to, right? We wake up here and now every day. We go to work here every day. We eat, we sleep, we drive around here every day. Everyone we know is from here. But this morning, what I want us to realize is that if you follow Jesus, and if you believe that his word in the Bible is more than just some helpful advice for your life, but that it's the foundational truth for all of life, then what I want us to discover together, not just so that we can know it up here, but so that we can live it from in here, is that beyond our here and now world is a there. Beyond our zoomed in, focused, our eyes can only see our earthly world with its earthly problems and its earthly leaders, God promises us a there in heaven forever with him. And no matter what happens here, as Christians, we have a there. More than that, as Christians, even though we live here now, the Bible tells us that we're not from here anymore. We don't belong here. We belong there. And so I want to communicate that in the midst of the change and the turmoil and the controversy going on in our world here, as Christians, no matter what happens here, we have a there where we're from and where we belong. Many places in the Bible communicates this message, but perhaps no passage communicates it more clearly than in Philippians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles and you're turned to Philippians, we're going to start here in verse 18. Really quick background on Philippians. Philippians is actually a letter. If you look in your Bible, it's not very long. It was a letter that a person named Paul wrote to a church he had planted in a city called Philippi, which was in that day in Macedonia. Paul was the greatest missionary the world has ever seen, and he writes this letter to this church, kind of checking in and talking about some things that are going on. The founding of the church of Philippi is a fascinating story. We don't have time to go into it today, but if later on you want to go home and read more about it, you can check out Acts chapter 16 to learn about the events surrounding this church starting. But when Paul has is writing this letter, he has moved on. He's writing back to them to talk to them about a few things. And this is what he writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. He starts out there and he says, For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. It's clear from his words that this isn't the first time that his readers are hearing this message. He's told them before, and now we'll say it again with tears in his eyes, many live as enemies of the cross. 
many people around them and many people around us live as though the message of the cross and the gospel have no implication on their everyday lives. And Paul is reminding them of this, and he reminds us of this, because we so easily fall into what sociologists call a projection bias, which is the tendency for us to assume that other people think like us and act like us. Sure, we, we can come to church on a Sunday morning, and when I say many live as enemies of the cross, it's not a surprise to you. It's not like you don't know that. But when we go and we get busy with our everyday lives, it's pretty easy to fall into believing that because we're, we're Christians and because we value certain things, everyone around us tends to value those same things as well. And Paul's saying that's not true. And he's saying, don't find it shocking when you go out into the world and you talk to people around you and you find out they live and they value different things than you value. Has this ever happened to you? It has to me. A couple months ago, my wife and I were watching a TV show on a network that very publicly, very visibly has sort of promoted some things that I believe the Bible says are wrong. And the show was written and created by writers and producers who... They don't claim to live a, a biblical lifestyle, and they're certainly not trying to communicate the message of Christ in their TV show. And the characters in the TV show certainly aren't trying to live like Jesus. And yet, as I'm watching the show, when it's revealed that one of the characters in the TV show is participating in something that I believe the Bible pretty clearly says is wrong, and as I'm watching the show, and I'm feeling like, like this, this thing that this guy's doing has nothing to do with the plot of the show or the story, but they're just putting it in there, in my opinion, to promote a certain agenda. What do I do? I turn to my wife and I complain, why do they have to put that in there? I mean, come on, really? This has nothing to do with anything. I'm sitting on my couch whining. And Paul is telling me, and he's telling the Philippians, and he's telling us, why are you so shocked? Like, why do you get so bent out of shape when not Christian, not Jesus followers, do not Christian, not Jesus-like things. After all, it's us Christians and us pastors who teach that no one can live a Christian life without Jesus' help. So why do we get so shocked and surprised whenever people who don't have Jesus in their lives don't live like Jesus would want them to live? And Paul's message here, many live as enemies of the cross, is that we as Christians should not be shocked when people who are far from God live their lives far from how God would want them to live. And Paul continues on, he said, look, look, when, when, when people are living as enemies of the cross, these are some traits of their lives. And he continues on in verse 19, he says this, their destiny is destruction. Their, meaning people who live for a here and not for a there, their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame because their mind is on earthly things. In order to understand what Paul's talking about here, we're going to take the phrases of this verse a little bit out of order, and we're going to start the second phrase. He says, their God, the thing in their lives that's more important to them than anything else, the thing that they worship, the being that they strive to please is what? Their stomach. This isn't Paul's eat healthy campaign. I read this the first time, I'm like, so Paul, are you telling me I need to get the salad instead of the buffet? And that's probably true, but that's not what he's trying to say. In ancient times, people used the, the stomach as a metaphor 
for the place inside of you where your passions and your desires lie. Kind of like today, whenever you're talking to your sweetheart, you're like, I love you with all my heart. It's kind of gross if you love her with your literal, literally all of your heart. What you're saying is, I love you with everything that I can fill. Paul is saying, their God, what they worship is their desire. They strive to obtain whatever it is that they desire. And with people who live for here, this looks like people who strive. I, I should have whatever relationship I want with whoever I want, if that makes me happy. I should be able to live in the living arrangement that will make me the happiest. I'm going to strive to get the things that I want, the truck, the house, the income, the reputation, the friends. Whatever it is in their life that they believe will bring them satisfaction is their God. And so when people live this self-indulgent life, Paul can write next that their glory is in their shame. Their glory is in their shame. So, so when we're living our lives, and when people live their lives to please themselves, what happens is they sort of have a skewed set of values. And Paul is saying that in those cases, they begin to glory in, or they begin to brag about and be proud of things for which they ought to feel shame and conviction. Sure, everybody, everybody sins. Paul sinned. We sinned. What he's saying is they're not just sinning. They're proud of it. Does this sound at all like our, our world that we live in today? This is, this is amazing. And this is what I love about my Bible when I read it. Because remember, Paul's writing this 2,000 years ago. And he could be describing yesterday. That's what's amazing about the Bible. Is it doesn't just speak to then. It speaks to now. And what this reminds us of is, we didn't just wake up one day and all of a sudden our world is all messed up. Our world has had upside-down morality for thousands of years. What we see today isn't new. In fact, if you look at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Isaiah was a prophet who lived 700 years before Paul. And he writes this in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put Darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. If you've ever felt like good and evil have been flipped upside down in the world around us, Paul and Isaiah are telling us that yes, it has and it isn't new. And it's because, as Paul says next, their mind is on earthly things. He's saying it's this way because their mind's just focused on here and now. Their mind's all zoomed in on this. They're living as though here is all that matters. And so backing up to the beginning of verse 19, when you live for though, as though here is all that matters, the end or the destiny of that kind of life is destruction. Maybe you're saying, there you pastors go again, all this gloom and doom destruction stuff. And yes, like we do believe that the Bible teaches that if you live your life for here without a relationship with Jesus, that the end of that is destruction, internal separation in hell. But just take a step aside from that for a moment. Even if you don't believe that, you have to admit that the longest and best life here still ends in destruction. No matter how long you live, your life will eventually end and your earthly body that was lived in for here will be destroyed. 
I want to call a 30-second timeout real quick because when I worked through this the first time, I was depressed. This is crazy, right? We're sitting there thinking, okay, Paul, like, what are you trying to do here? It'll help us to understand what's coming next if, next if we pause for a moment and ask ourselves the question, why is Paul writing all this bleak stuff? It's not so that he and his buddies can go to McDonald's and get coffee and sit around and reminisce to their kids about how good the world used to be and how messed up it is now. It's not so they feel indignant or disgusted or so that they can look down at others like, we've got our stuff, but man, you guys are way worse than us. Paul is writing this to them and to us to help us understand our reality, to make sense of it. And what he's saying is, the world seems crazy to you because if you follow Jesus, you're not from here, you're from there. And the way they do stuff here is different than they do it here. They have a different culture here, a different set of values, a different way of thinking. And as Christians, you're not from here, you're from there. And that's why in verse 20, he writes, we are citizens of heaven. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. We're not from here anymore. We're from there. And what might seem normal here, because we're from there, it's going to seem strange. And what might seem strange here, because we're from there, it's our normal. Now let me give you an example of what I mean. Most of us here are from western Pennsylvania. I grew up in Uniontown, which is in western Pennsylvania. In western Pennsylvania, I am told that we do things a little bit differently sometimes. For example... I am told we have a different standard by which we evaluate weddings. In Western PA, when someone says, how was the wedding? They are not asking you, was the bride beautiful? Was the ceremony nice? Or did the best man and maid of honor do a good job with their speeches? When someone asks you in Western PA, how was the wedding? What are they asking you? How was the cookie table? Exactly, right? How was the cookie table? They want to know, did they take the time to make the little peach balls that have the green on top, the cream in the middle, that are rolled in sugar and dyed peach? Those are awesome. Or how did the chocolate chip cookies turn out? Did they bake them right or was the bottom burnt? Or how did the little Hershey Kiss peanut butter cookies turn out? You know, were the Hershey Kisses like all hard, like you're going to break your teeth when you bite into them? Or did they use the special cookie magic? And somehow they make it so that even though the cookies cool down, when you bite into the Hershey Kiss, it just melts in your mouth. When people want to know how was the wedding, they're asking, how was the cookie table? I'm told that they don't do that in other places. I know. It's crazy. In fact, when I go to a wedding that doesn't have a cookie table, I kind of feel ripped off. <laughs> I do. I, I want to ask my wife, like, what's our card look like? Is it still on top? Because I'm going to reach down. And we, put too many, we put too much money in there. Okay, that's a joke. I'm not. Please. No, I don't do that. But seriously, in all seriousness, whether you're eating pigs in a blanket at the Uniontown Fire Hall or filet mignon at the Omni William Penn, any Western PA wedding you walk into, you're at the re wedding reception, you're going to go around the corner, you're going to see a cookie table, and I guarantee Aunt Sally's Lady Locks are somewhere on it because that's how we do it. And I'm told that makes us different. I just think it makes us better <laughs> and fatter. 
And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, okay, look, guys, look, you're going to have things. As Christians, as followers of Jesus in our lives, we're going to have things that we do that are just going to be different than the rest of the world. And they're going to think we're strange. He's saying, like, you guys aren't, aren't different. Like, you're from Pittsburgh and not from New England different. Thank heaven. And you're, you're not different. Like, you're from the United States and not from a foreign country. He's saying, you're different. Like, you're not from this world anymore. You're different because your allegiance, your citizenship has been transferred to God's kingdom from this earthly world. And your mindset has changed from an earthly mindset to a heavenly mindset. Because we're not citizens of here. We're citizens of heaven. And because of this, Paul can write next. This is what it means for our lives. In verse 20, the second half, he says, And we eagerly await a Savior from where? From there. He's saying our Savior is not from here. Our Savior is not our supreme good justices being the right people. Our Savior is not getting the right people elected to office. Our Savior is not our military strength or having the right economic or social policies. Our Savior isn't outlawing bad things and enforcing good things. Our Savior is not from here. Our Savior is from there. And who is it? Our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a hope that's beyond this world. We're not counting on our government to figure things out. We're not counting on the Republicans to figure things out. And we're not counting on the Democrats to figure things out. Our Savior is not from here. Our Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ from there. And now I realize, I realize at this point, I'm at risk for being misunderstood. So let me be really, really clear. Like, I'm not saying, and I don't think that the Bible teaches that our laws or our leaders or our government or any of those things aren't important. They're really important for here in the future of here. And because we're here for a little while, we should do what we reasonably, reasonably can to influence them. What I am saying and what the Bible does teach is that we should not put our hope in them. They will never be our source of peace. Our world has problems that governments and political parties and Supreme Court justices and policies cannot fix. Our world has challenges that only Jesus can fix. And as believers, as citizens of heaven, we don't hope in the things here. Our hope is in Jesus. And that goes as far to say that, look, if our nation, if our country gets all messed up, nothing goes right. Our government's messed up, our laws are messed up. I would argue that 100%, absolutely yes, we can still have hope because our hope is in Jesus. In fact, Paul writes that because our hope is in Jesus, because we await a Savior from there, he writes in verse 21 that it's Jesus who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Jesus has the power to bring everything under his control. He is in control. God is in control. Nothing that's happened in our world has been outside of God's notice or his control. God didn't just wake up one morning and find out Donald Trump got elected as president. Oh, 
I'm going to have to Google what to do about that. God didn't take a vacation and come back to find out that same-sex marriage was all of a sudden legalized and turn to some angel and say, see, that's why I can't ever go away. Nothing that's happened in our world is beyond his control. In fact, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. This is a verse to underline in your Bible. It says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority, no government, no leader, except that which God has established. And the authorities that exist have been established by God. God doesn't promise to let us know why he allows our leadership, our government, to do the things that it does and make the decisions that it makes. But he, he does promise that he has all the power that he needs to be in control, not just of our lives, but of our world. And so here in Philippians, we see, because we're citizens of heaven, no matter what happens here, we have a there. So let's, let's make this personal in our final couple minutes together. You might be sitting there, and you might be thinking, okay, okay, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm a Christian. I get it. I'm a citizen of heaven. But Joe, I'm not a pastor. Maybe you get to sit around all week long and think about what heaven's going to be like, but I got to get up and work, go to work in the morning. Here. I've got bills to pay. Here. I've got responsibilities to take up. Here. Take care of. Here. It's a great question. That's what I want to talk about. So what does it look like, really, to live our lives like no matter what happens there, here, we have a there, even though we live here every day. <clears throat> I want to give you five things, five things. The first one is this, and this might be the most important. Know your purpose here. Know your purpose here. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, and we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled, re reconciled to God. We are Christ's ambassadors. An ambassador is a diplomat sent by one country as its official representative to a foreign country. And that says that, that means that we have been sent from there, from God's kingdom in heaven, to here to represent him. If you call yourself a Christian and you follow Jesus, you represent Christ to those around you. You represent Christ to that guy you sit next to at work. You're an ambassador to him. And maybe you can talk to him about football or guns or hunting or anything else, but every time the topic of faith comes up, you kind of freeze and don't know what to say. And this verse says that you've got to talk to him about it because you carry the message of Christ to that person next to you at work. Or, or, or maybe... That means that that homeowner that hired you to do that job, you're God's ambassador to them. What if God didn't just give you that work so that you could put food on your table, but so that in working at that person's house, you could be an ambassador to them through the quality of the work that you do, through your integrity, but also through the conversations that you have. You're an ambassador to your neighbor that you see walking their dog through the neighborhood every couple days. Just think about it. Of all the people in Butler, the thousands of people, the thousands of places that you and they could have lived, what are the chances that you would live next to each other? What if it's not coincidence? What if God and his providence knew to put the two of you next to each other so that you as a follower of Jesus could be a light to your neighbor? We're talking about the winter shelter. Maybe God's calling you to be an ambassador to our community 
by signing up to go and stay a night and show God's light to someone in Butler who needs a place to stay. The hardest place, I think, to be an ambassador is at home. Your spouse and your kids know the real you because you can't hide forever. How are you doing there? What, what would your life be like? What would it mean for you if you considered yourself not just a father or a mother, not just a husband or a wife, but as an ambassador to the people that you see every day without your makeup on, without your people, people who know the real you. Number two, number two, be a good citizen. Be a good citizen. Did you know that Paul was a Roman citizen? He had a citizenship in heaven and he had a citizenship on earth. And Paul, instead of renouncing his Roman citizenship, he used it to further the kingdom of God. God has given you this place as an American citizen. He's not calling you to escape and isolate yourself. He's calling you to be a good citizen. What does that look like? First thing is praying for our leaders. Pray for our leaders. If you're not praying for the leadership of our country, then I can't imagine that God would want to hear you complaining to anyone else about it. Vote. We've been given a special right to vote for our leaders. Vote for people who you feel will make biblical decisions. Be involved in your community. Be involved in making a difference in the lives of the people around us. Be a good citizen. The third thing is adjust what you expect from people who don't follow Jesus. Adjust what you expect from people who don't follow Jesus. <clears throat> And some of the Christians I talk to, I feel like we're more concerned about how well people who aren't Christians follow the Bible than we are concerned about it for ourselves. And so what Paul is saying here, when he says, there are many who he tells with tears that they don't follow, they live as enemies of the cross. What he's saying is, look, look, you're going to come in contact with people who don't believe the same way that you do, that live a lifestyle that you would never live. Don't look down on them. Don't find them irritating or not understandable. See them how God would see them. Show them the love of Christ. Treat them with extra kindness. Wouldn't it be awesome if the next time we had baptism service here, there were people in our baptismal tank saying, you know what? You know, I met, I met Bob from Community Alliance Church, and I found out he was a Christian. I thought, he's going to judge me. I'm very different. I believe different things. But then I got to know him. And he treated me better than anybody I've ever met. He was kind. He was concerned. He said he was praying for me. Once I got to know him, even though I knew he didn't believe the, things, the same things, man, because of the way he treated me, I had to find out more about this Jesus that I knew. Adjust what you expect of people who don't follow Jesus. Number four. Number four. Add the words, God is in control to your everyday vocabulary. Those four words could change your life. God is in control. Say them at least five times a day. God is in control. A couple weeks ago, I was talking to one of the leaders here at our church, and he was sharing about some changes that were happening where he worked, and it might affect his job, but he was saying, I might lose my job. I'm not sure what's going to happen. And this guy's got kids in college and I mean, a family to take care of. And so I'm like, wow, I'm really sorry to hear that. You know, that's, that's, that's bad. He said, oh, no, it's okay. God is in control. God is in control. I might lose my job, but that's okay. If, if God doesn't want me here or have me somewhere else, God's in control. 
And I walked away from that conversation saying, man, <clears throat> I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of faith for my life. That when something goes wrong in my life or when something goes wrong in my world, I know God will be there. Say that every day, at least five times, and your viewpoint will change. The final thing is this. Be free to enjoy here. Be free to enjoy here. I believe that when we know that something won't last, and we know that nothing we can do will make it last longer, we suddenly have the freedom to enjoy it more. Let me give you an example. My son got Legos for Christmas, and he's five. So, so a few weeks ago, we are building a Lego house, and we're trying to follow the instructions, and he's not listening to me. Like, it was saying, use red pieces, and he wanted to use blue pieces. And I'm sitting there with my five-year-old son who can't even read, and I'm getting frustrated, like, no, you put, a, you put a blue piece on again. Use the red piece. And all of a sudden, God broke through to me, and he was like, you dummy, because that's what he has to call me, because that's what I am sometimes. He's like, come on, man. You are building a Lego house with a five-year-old, and you're acting like you have to live here for a hundred years. Just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. It's going to get destroyed before the end of the day. Enjoy it. And he's saying that to us. Guys, look, we live here on earth, but we're not staying here. And it's not going to last forever. So don't be so uptight. Enjoy the life that God has given you. Don't let your fear and your concern and your need to control everything overwhelm the gift that God has given us and rob you from the joy he wants you to have in enjoying our world. So, what does this look like? Let me close with a little example. No matter what happens here, we have a there. If somebody wants to come to America as a citizen from another country, there's a couple ways to do it. The first way is to, to get a green card. So when you get a green card and you're coming from another country, what happens is, is you, you say, I'm going to keep my citizenship from my, my home country, but I'm going to get a green card and I'm going to have legal permission to come and stay and reside here permanently. You come and live here like you're not going back. That's one way. Another way is to get a visa. And put really simply is a visa is when you come to our country, when you come to America, you get a visa, which means I'm here for a specific purpose for a limited amount of time with the intent to return. My question that I've been wrestling with myself and I want you to wrestle with me, with me, are you living like a green card Christian or are you living like a visa Christian? Are you living this today like, like I get it, I'm a citizen of heaven, but if anyone looked at your life, they would swear that you intended to stay here forever by how you're living by what you do with your time, with the relationships that you've built, with your resources. You might say you're a Christian, but every, all the evidence in your life says that you live like here is all that matters. Or are you living like a visa Christian? Are you living like God has sent me here for a purpose? I'm here for a limited amount of time, and when I've done what he has for me to do, I'm going back. So that's the question I want you to wrestle with this week. When you became a Christian, did you just get a green card like you're going to stay here forever? Or did God give you a visa? Because you know you've got work to do here, but one day you're going.
Are you living like here is all that matters? Or are you living like no matter what happens here, I know and I can trust God because I have prayer. Let me close in a word of prayer. God, thank you so much, Lord. I, I, actually, I, I pray as, I, as I'm looking at this, God, I'm like, it's so easy to get up here and talk about this. It's really hard to live like this. God, I pray that you'll help me to live like this. Pray that you'll help me to live as an example of what it means to, to live as those there is where I'm going ultimately. Pray that you'll help our church. What would happen if our church began to live like this to show our neighbors, our friends, and our community what it means to live for God's kingdom? I pray for folks here that you'll challenge them with Paul's words about our citizenship in heaven. Our hope is in Jesus, and he has all the control. God, as we leave this building, we enter the world that you want us to reach. And I pray that you will use us today and this week to take your light to those around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Pastor Denny will be back next week. He's away this week at a pastor's conference. We hope to see you next week. Thanks for being here. Have a wonderful a week.